0: You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Rebuilding Jerusalem and have been learning, uh, and we've been learning about how in this moment in the history of God's redemption, that, that we're to learn something about our work, building up the church of Jesus in the world today. And in today's text, what we see is that the work of building the wall has come to an end. And, and, and the city isn't completely restored, but the temple and the wall have been rebuilt. They've been completed, and this signifies something important for the people of Israel, And so in the beginning of chapter 7, what we see is that Nehemiah seeks to make a transition for the people of Israel and and their cultural moment from this building project to a unifying and consolidating effort of the people of God to make them a holy people to the Lord. And, And so the restoration of Jerusalem isn't complete just because the wall is finished and the temple is finished, but it will be complete when God's people are united in holiness and worship under the lordship of Yahweh. And so Nehemiah, he does a few things. He appoints leaders who care about the city to oversee it. He makes a plan for ongoing defense, particularly regarding the, the gates of the walls being closed a, a lot of the time to prevent enemies from coming in. And he republishes this genealogy that originally was written in Ezra chapter 2. And, and it's a genealogy which lists all of the people who first returned to Jerusalem at the end of exile to do the project of building the temple. So this is, these are the people who came before those who were building the wall of Jerusalem, and so Nehemiah's rooting them in their history. In these three things, Nehemiah is working toward establishing a people with roots and stability, a people united in a way that's more significant than simply having shared an intense season of building together. He established leaders so that there could be more sustainable and long-term systems of government and oversight and care for the people. He developed a system of protection that was less intense and less alarming than the previous strategy during the building project, which was to work with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. And he rooted the people of Israel in their identity as a chosen people, a family of families, marked by those who came before them to do the work that they are now reaping the benefits of. This is... A normal and, and good thing to do in a moment like this. For, for instance, for terms that we might better understand, a, a local church plant might require a, a time where there is focused leadership of just one or two men and, and a period of really hard work from a small, committed core group of people. And, and they'll face an onslaught of intense challenges. And there's going to be this sense of being alone in the present work, and a sense of being pioneers as if we're the first people who have ever done this before. And yet, for that congregation to be sustainable, eventually leadership needs to be shared and pluralized. Systems for sustainability and care need to be established. And a sense of being part of something bigger than this small church plant and one given city or neighborhood has to be developed. Uh, the church needs to develop a sense of, of place as part of the global church and the historic church and even the church in their city. And, and Nehemiah's leadership is, is doing something like this. He's rooting the people in something sustainable. In the days of Jesus, something similar took place. Jesus had an intense three-year short period of earthly ministry, and it was highly focused upon him and what he was doing, his teachings, his miracles, his vision for the future. And he had a core group of followers who worked tirelessly in the face of danger, and they were attacked relentlessly by their opponents. But once Jesus rebuilt the true temple through his death and resurrection, which that's what he refers to his ministry as, is this rebuilding of the temple, then he establishes a more sustainable church. He sent his apostles to make disciples who made disciples, to plant churches that planted churches, to share leadership and and spread out the weight of the burden of caring for the people of God and proclaiming the good news of the gospel. He gave His people systems through which to minister, namely baptism and the ministry of the Word and the table fellowship of the Eucharist. And in all of this, Jesus is rooting His church in their history. The fact that, that they are, are not just lone pioneers, but they're rooted in what God had promised to Adam and Abraham and, Nozick and Noah and Isaac and Jacob and David. And so now that the church was built, Jesus knew it needed to be sustained and grown. And so like the people of Jerusalem in the days of Nehemiah, the apostles needed something more than structure and systems. They needed the ministry of God's Spirit, and they needed communion with God himself. And so in chapter 8, this is what we see taking place, is that Israel takes its most significant step thus far in this effort to reestablish themselves as a holy nation and a kingdom of priests as they're coming out of exile. They're they're taking a step toward being the people that God has always wanted them to be, a people marked by union with God. They have a newly built wall. They have a plan for defense. They have the genealogy of their leaders at their disposal. But the people of Israel, with all of those things, are invited to gather in Jerusalem. On the seventh month, to participate in the feasts of the seven month, and so on the seven month uh, of every year, according to the Torah, the Old Testament law, the people of Israel were to observe multiple feasts, and these feasts were to be occasions in which God's people remembered His faithfulness. They celebrated the mercy that God had shown them particularly as they remembered the Exodus story where God released his people from slavery in Egypt and so they had feasts to that end. They had rituals and offerings and sacrifices and all of it was centered around Israel remembering who they were in light of who their God is and what he had done on their behalf. Nehemiah 8 verses 1 and 2 says this, and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. There's, there's a few things I want to mention about those two verses. The first is, I just want you to pay attention to this language, that the people were gathered as one man. It has always been the desire of God for his people to be united, to operate as one. This has been true since God made the two become one in the marriage of Adam and Eve. And it's always been true in God's covenant relationship with his people that he desired to have a people unified. This, this is even more clear as we read the New Testament. Jesus in John 17 Before he goes to the cross, he's praying for his people, and his prayer is primarily that his people would be one. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4 that the church is one body with one spirit, with one hope, with one Lord, with one faith, marked by one baptism under one God and Father of all. So the people being gathered as one man in the first verse of chapter 8 should be telling us that something really spiritually significant is about to take place. God's people are becoming who they were meant to be. They're gathered at the water gate, which is important because it's not in the temple court, which means women and children and Gentiles were welcome to be there And so God's people gathering as one man requires the fullness of the congregation, not just representatives of households. This is the whole of the people. The second thing I want to point out is that we're introduced for the first time in this book to Ezra, and Ezra is the star player in the book of Ezra. Um, he's a priest and described the primary spiritual leader of the people of Israel in the days of building the temple and even in the days of Nehemiah. He plays a big role in the history of God's people. He's referred to throughout Israel's history as the second lawgiver because of this moment. So Moses gave the people the law at Mount Sinai. Ezra gives the people the law once again coming out of exile here at the Watergate. Third thing I want you to notice is that it's the people who tell Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses out to be read. right? So this isn't a spiritual leader of God's household impressing the word of the Lord upon the people. These people want God's word to be read to them. They want to be marked by it. And many of them likely had never heard the Torah read before. Because in the period prior to exile and in the exile, religious devotion was significantly tainted by the worship of foreign gods and just good old-fashioned apathy. But now, these people understand that something significant happened. The holy city is being restored. We're gathered together as one people. We need the word of God read to us. We're, We're craving it. Life had proved dangerous, confusing, full of chaos, and so the people of God wanted to allow God to order their lives, to show them how to live as they emerged from this melting pot of cultural darkness that was Babylon and Persia. Church, I hope that we crave the word of God in the ways that they did in Nehemiah chapter 8. Do we crave the word of God to shape our life, to give us meaning, to offer us hope, to provide for us solutions? as much as these people did. We need to be like them. The fourth thing is, is that this is the first day of the seventh month. This is the day when the Feast of Trumpets would be celebrated. It would be inaugurating this month of feasting and ritual worship, and none of these feasts had been celebrated with regularity in many generations, at least throughout the generation of those in exile, these feasts had had probably not been observed at all, and if so, certainly not in their fullness. Later in chapter 8, which we're we're not really going to get to, but we're told that the Feast of Booths, which is the primary feast in the seventh month, hadn't been celebrated as God commanded it to since the days of Joshua, which is the first generation following God giving them the law. And, And so it's been generations upon generations of God's people not observing these feasts. But because they're rediscovering who they are, they want to remember their rituals, their rhythms, the way God has orchestrated them to live. This is what happens when God's people are united and want his word to be proclaimed among them. They begin to behave in ways that they formerly did not. Verses 3-8 through says this, And Ezra read it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. Just note, we may sometimes preach long. We don't preach that long. In the presence of the men and women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood 13 men on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also thirteen men, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law, while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. This is such a beautiful scene in this book. All of God's people are sitting together, united under the authority of God's word. They're listening carefully. They're worshiping in response. And it's not just this ritualistic reading of the word over the people, but it's being carefully taught and explained and exposited. The, the priests are walking around the crowds explaining what Ezra's reading. They're, they're stopping and taking time so that the people understand what God is calling them to, the promises he's making to them, the ways that he's called them to live. It teaches us that God's word isn't just for ordained clergy or the academically inclined. It's not just for those who desire to be overly pious. It's meant for every man, woman, and child who are under the authority of God. It's meant to enrich and direct and empower the people of God toward worship and fruitful living. And here, for the first time in many, many years, God's people are being exposed to his word in a meaningful way. And something powerfully beautiful is happening. Because as the word is being read and taught, the people begin to weep. They feel deep contrition and sorrow. They realize that they hadn't been keeping the commandments. They hadn't been cherishing God's promises. They hadn't been trusting in His faithfulness. They hadn't been keeping the feasts or performing their vows or giving their offerings or bringing forward their sacrifices. Many of them probably realized that their whole lives had been devoted to something other than God. It had been devoid of this ultimate purpose, that they had missed out on experiencing the pleasure of walking in relationship with the God of the universe, and they felt the pain and shame of conviction for their sin in that moment. God's word to them was a double-edged sword, convicting them of sin and exposing them to beauty and healing. And so they wept. Imagine this, thousands of people for the first time hearing the word and proclamation and promises of God and they they just begin to weep. And, And in many ways, this is a positive and right response. It's appropriate for our hearts to be full of contrition and sorrow and repentance when God's word exposes our sin to us or shows us the ways that we've been missing out on him and his kingdom in all of our wandering. It's easy in those times to be caught in despair and self-loathing when you realize that you've wasted your life on things less meaningful and wonderful than the things of God. It can be gut-wrenching to realize that you've disobeyed the God who loves you so deeply and who wants such good things for you. Some of you have experienced that. You've experienced a moment like that. Some of you are, are maybe even feeling that right now as the Spirit is impressing upon you that you've been missing out on the fullness of God? Have you disregarded His Word or His ways? Have you devoted your life to earthly things and wasted your time on pleasures that don't last? If so, it's not wrong to feel sorrow. It's not wrong to weep. The authors of the Gospels often spoke of Jesus' life as light shining in the darkness exposing people in, in their hearts and in their ways. And this was a painful process. The Gospel of John refers to Jesus as the Word of God in flesh. And so even more than the Bible being put before us to convict us, Jesus has come before all of us to show us that we've missed out on the things of God, the things that we've got wrong. Jesus shows us the ways that we've failed up to live... to failed to live up to God's righteous commandments, Jesus exposes those things to us. When we behold him as he truly is, the word of God in in Nehemiah was put on display on this wooden platform by Ezra. The people were attentive to that. They, They saw the word of God and they wept. So was the Son of Man, the word of God in flesh, Jesus Christ, put on display before the people on a wooden cross. And when he was put on display, he exposed all of humanity as sinful and as in desperate need for God, but also to display the fullness of God's love and care for his people. It's not just an invitation to weeping and conviction, it's a proclamation of the love and faithfulness and promises of God. The trial and death of our, our Savior, it exposes us for who we are. But what comes next in Nehemiah 8 shows us that there is something more glorious than weeping and contrition. Verses 9 through 12 say, and Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to the Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they understood the words that were declared to them. Nehemiah calls the people who are weeping over their sin to feasting and celebration, toward joy and gladness. He says, eat the fat, Drink the sweet wine and share with anyone in need. And, and the most beautiful and powerful verse in this is when he says, The joy of the Lord is your strength. The word for strength there is, is the word that maybe even best translates as stronghold, fortress. So, so get this, the people have just finished building this wall to surround their city for protection. They have leaders and a plan for defense. They have the authority and the blessing of the king of Persia. And then they hear the word of God. They're cut to the heart. They're led to weeping and repentance. And Nehemiah tells them that it isn't the wall which will be their fortress. It isn't their government which will protect them. It isn't even their conviction regarding their sin or their conviction to pursue holiness that will be their strength. The strength of the people of God is that God has put joy in their hearts. This is the way that God's people are to be distinct from every other people in the world. We are sinful and weep and yet God turns our weeping to joy. His word is the gift that teaches us about his love and his promises. God has made us to be joyful in a world of sorrow. He's given us order in a world of chaos. He's given us direction in a world that's utterly confused. And we are called to feast and celebrate with joy. Though the project we have undertaken is not yet complete, Though our enemies still prowl in every corner, though our sinfulness constantly besets us, though our circumstances at times are dire, our strength is the joy that God has given us. So do not weep and mourn, but celebrate. He's given us joy because Jesus has borne the fullness of our weaknesses. He's carried the, the fullness of our sorrow and he's forgiven every last one of our sins. So joyful feasting is appropriate at all times for the people of God. In a world that's marked by, on one end of the spectrum, reductionistic necessity, and on the other end of the spectrum, obscene gratuity, we are called to laugh and eat and drink and share with those in need. See, the peoples of the world, they indulge themselves in vanity, or they fast in self-righteous. And those are meaningless and hollow ends of shallow worldviews and empty hopes. But the word of God, Jesus Christ, has come down to shed light upon darkness and to invite us into real meaning, a meaning in which we feast with purpose unto God as worship and in response to the love that he's shown us through his Son. So the word of God in Jesus has come down to put joy in your heart to make you a peculiar person among the peoples of the world. After all, joy is the only logical response to the manifestation of love that God has displayed to us through his son, Jesus Christ. There's a beautiful song that the refrain is, how can I keep from singing? At the sight of the beauty of God's love displayed through Jesus, how can we keep from singing? Nehemiah teaching us something beautiful. That that walls can be broken, that governments erode, that conviction might waver, that determination might falter, but the joy that comes from having been called a beloved and forgiven son by the God of creation is impenetrable. This is the stronghold. This is our hope. Jesus promised his disciples, that his resurrection would lead them to being filled with this sort of joy that can't be taken away from them. This is the way in which joy is a stronghold that God has made us to be joyful people who cannot be stripped of gladness that comes from being showered with his love. The joy of the Lord cannot be taken away by men. It can't be tricked away from you by demons and it can't be eroded by circumstance. Nehemiah is showing us that the word of God is to be utterly desired, that it's, that it's what will expose us for who we are and who we failed to be and that this is good because contrition and repentance are good and necessary, but repentance, hear this, is not an end unto itself. It is an invitation and a preparation for joyfulness, for delighting in God and all that he is doing, for finding your worth in the love that he has shown to you in Christ. Contrition leads to joy because we find that it's not so much about what we have failed to do, but that it's about everything that God has done on our behalf. The word of God does not only contain laws and rules that expose our sin, but Nehemiah 8 reminds us that it gives direction for how we ought to posture ourselves before God. Not in prostrate fear, but in celebration and ritual feasting. As the chapter continues, the people go on to celebrate the Feast of Booths, a feast that's meant to remind the people of God's faithfulness to their ancestors when he led them out of slavery and provided for them in their wilderness journey of 40 years. It's an extremely appropriate thing for the people of God in this moment in their history because they've just emerged from exile. They've just experienced this exodus from Babylon and Persia. So God is inviting them to feast and to remember his faithfulness. Church, God has led us also in an exodus. Out of slavery to sin and death, and the grips of worldly pleasures, and out of slavery to sorrow. His Word has shown us how we ought to walk, but it's also shown us how we ought to worship, and that's through joyful feasting. The Feast of Booths was this beautiful annual celebration on the seventh month. But the Feast of the New Covenant, the Eucharist, is more joyful and wonderful still, Because it is not on the seventh month, but it's on the seventh day of every week that God invites us back together in his holy city, having heard the word of God, read and taught, remembering his faithfulness through the Exodus ministry of Jesus' death, we feast upon the bread of life. We drink the blood of the covenant, sweet wine to the lips of those who have been embittered by a world of sin, and we are sent to share with those in need not with shrunken faces and hearts of sorrow, but with the joy of the Lord as our strength, as it will be forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your son, Jesus, is our only hope in life and in death and that regardless of what our circumstances are, today in our given lives or, or in this church or in our society that we can have joy because of your love for us, because of your faithfulness toward us, and because of your promises to us that we can trust in when everything else seems to give way. Would you fill our hearts with immeasurable joy? Would you make us to laugh and to feast and to celebrate and to find gladness in an empty tomb and the forgiveness of our sins? to take joy in the refuge of the family you've given us in your church, the meaning that you've given us in your kingdom, and the blessedness that you have poured out on us through the blood of Jesus. As we come to the table this morning, I pray that we would do so not with our heads hung low in sorrow and contrition, but with gladness in our hearts as those who have been forgiven and invited to feast at your table forevermore. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.